one of the things we do every week is this, this riff rap library where I talk about another record. And, and a couple of weeks ago, I talked about one of my favorite albums, uh, which is a thousand Hertz or, uh, yeah, a thousand hertz by shellac, mm-hmm. and and I realized that I I totally missed like probably the coolest thing about the vinyl, like uh, the vinyl release of that. You know, it comes in this like uh, quantity looking tape uh, box and everything, but on the actual runoff groove of the record, uh, it has it has like a, a secret message in there, and I and I just wanted to share that with you guys really quick okay. um, because it's my it's my favorite <laughs> joke of all time. Uh, on the on side A, it says, um, "What's." What's red orange? What's red and orange and looks great on hippies? What? No idea. Fire. <laughs> Let's do a podcast, uh, Gearbuds podcast. That is episode seventy. Can't believe that. That's a big number. Yeah. Right. Like we're climbing. We're into like. We're into like. The defensive lineman football number territory here, yeah. which is is kind of crazy. Senior citizen, uh, I can't believe we've done seventy plus of these. It, it, we say it's episode seventy, but of course, the longtime fans know that we kind of fudge those numbers a little bit because there were some weird double episodes in the beginning. It's probably mm-hmm. more like mid seventies at this point, but we're gonna stick to it. Yeah, episode seventy. I'm Henry. You're Dave, yeah. and we have an amazing guest on the line this week, uh, Mr. Stephen Shirk from Shirk Studios. What's up, man? Hey, man. How you doing? Good to be here. Thank you so much for being here. We are excellent and cannot wait to talk about all the amazing stuff that you do and have done in your studio and all that cool shit. Uh, Before we do that, we're going to dive into our usual segments and start with the Symphony of Corrections. Here is your weekly reminder that cables are tone tubes. Uh, Thank you, listeners, far and wide. Uh, I did a little, you know, I'll take a quick little aside here. I did a little uh, demographic uh, searching back on the back end of our Squarespace here. And uh, we're, we're getting a lot more international listeners these days, including wow. a lot in the UK. So I wanted to I wanted to just say hello to all of our UK friends hello. because that's pretty cool. Uh, so, you know, that's whenever excellent. you listen to this, say hi. Follow us, Instagram, Gearbuds Podcast, Facebook, Dave, killing it as always. Subscribe, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google. Uh, this is kind of cool. I, I'm very excited about this. So one of the things that we've been doing during this whole uh, corona lockdown is this uh, free stuff segment where um, every week I've been updating at gearbudspodcast.com slash free stuff, a bunch of different free plugins and sample libraries and that kind of thing that people are, are releasing right now, partially just because everyone's sort of locked at home right now. And Typically, that involves me just being a weirdo that likes to record and mix music, seeking things out on all the blogs and websites and everything. This week, I'm excited to announce that someone actually reached out to us to tell us about their free release. So, oh. of course, we have to talk about it. And um, I'm going to be honest. I don't know how to pronounce the the company's name. It is BVKER.com. Hmm. Maybe it's Buker. Maybe it's Biviker. Maybe it's Biker? Bucker. I don't know. I don't know how to say it, but uh, the the sort of proprietor of it, Luis, reached out, um, said that they've got this new uh, drum kit, the sample library that they that they put out for free. Um, it's called the Metro Boomin Drum Kit. I'll put the link up to that, and it's basically. And I checked it out. It's a lot of really cool sounds. If you're into um, recording and mixing sort of like rap or trap music it's it's all in that sort of style um based on the producer metro boomin young metro is his name he's done stuff with every all the big names in rap kanye travis scott you name it he's he's done stuff with them so cool. uh i'll get that up there that's and, awesome. and i'm super stoked that someone reached out to us to to get that out to the world so that will be up there for you um one other thing i as long as we're talking about stuff out in the world i don't think we mentioned but my first article for reverb is out in yeah. the world and i wanted to make sure we mentioned that congratulations i, know, I man. think right. dave, 
Oh, thanks, man. I think you uh, you sh- you shared that on the old Facebook, did mm-hmm. you not? I did, I did. Um, dude, it's great. I mean, it's a great read. Uh, if you want to give the overview, but uh, you know, it's basically it's great. It's a great introductory to podcasting. I think for people who don't know how to get started or how to you know do from anything from really simple to all the way to the great professional shit. So, did you have fun writing it? I did. Yeah, it was. It's it's always fun to write about something that you're intimately familiar with and have made a lot of mistakes already. And frankly, it was pretty nice to just be able to shout out our podcast to Reverb's audience, and we've gotten <laughs> sure. quite a bit of traffic from that since then. We'll so that's pretty it. cool. Uh, and I will say, my favorite part about it, although, is that uh, I, that editing was very minimal, and my and I and my sort of. Uh, slam on joe rogan at the beginning yeah uh, made it through the editorial process and i couldn't be more <laughs> proud of that honestly I, I i i where i referred to him as the internet's favorite sentient dmt seasoned rib, ribeye steak yeah uh, that i thought for sure that that would not make it through editorial but you know like see to and show what i know and i think if you would have hit on elk steak then you really would have would have driven it home with his, <laughs> Damn with his it, true dude, fans that would have been so much yeah because he Fuck. If, if you listen he hunts his own elk and he has like you know refrigerators oh. of it in his basement so damn um but uh yeah man i do the article is really well done and it's not you know it's not too lengthy either i mean you don't spend like an hour reading it it's just a nice a nice quick read a nice overview with of course links to all the gear that you know you you mentioned in the article so it's yeah you could literally go through that thing and 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 be all ready to go um ready to record do your podcast whatever you want to do so nice well hell yeah i'm glad i'm glad you got something out of it i i've heard from others that they've got some things out of it so go check that out cool. uh, i've got another one coming out soon uh oh yeah We'll update on uh, the sub segment, bad fucking ideas. Uh, of course, <laughs> as we expected, uh, they're already reporting many cases of COVID coming out of the Sturgis rally. Yeah. So like, you know, it's not like we, we're, it's that big of a thing for us. Like it wasn't that big of a leap for us to make, but uh, you know, it came t- to bear. So yeah, don't go to, don't go to giant rallies right now, please people. It's, it's making it harder for the rest of the world who wants to fucking get back to business. It's so, it's so funny. I mean, it's, it. it's like clockwork, like one week later and we're like, okay, yep. That makes sense. All right, that's mm-hmm. how it works. So, um, bad excellent. Oh, speaking of speaking of elk, uh, just a quick little update here because uh, we talked last week about the elk audio. Oh God, now I can't even remember what the actual is it the alpha system, whatever it's called. Elk Audio has released the, or is in the beta process of releasing this um, hardware software solution that is supposedly going to solve the issue of real time jamming virtually across the internet. Mm-hmm. If anybody has tried that, you know there's just latency. It's it sucks. Uh, we've all tried it different ways, but supposedly this solution is going to is going to fix that. Well, uh, our favorite. Uh, antenna professor mr steve holland aka speakers one of my best <laughs> friends uh, from growing up the drummer in my first band wrote a lengthy dissertation uh on our facebook page yeah. about the science behind how this might work and and broke it down in very specific detail with how data is transmitted over certain pieces of wire and fiber optic and all this stuff and and i'm not even going to begin to try to explain it here on the show because it's fucking wild but if you go to our facebook page uh he made this like seriously it must be like thousand word explanation of the science behind how this might work and breaking it down and uh you know i gotta say it was really it was a really good read and he's obviously just like one of the smartest people i've ever met and is a literal antenna professor so the dude knows more about this stuff than anybody (laughs) i've ever known uh go check it out if you're at all interested in learning the science behind how jamming over the internet might work i love it Oh, we were talking about it a little bit before uh, before we started recording here, but uh, our, uh, Jack White is about to auction off a whole bunch of his old gear uh, oh, at really? online Nashville auctions dot 
hibid.com. Uh, it's actually technically a third man records, uh, auction that i believe begins on the 26th it'll be next week so okay. august 26th through the 30th i think uh, and it's an auction uh it's there's a lot of really cool stuff you know sort of like prototype guitars and and gear from you know the the drum set from the hardest button to button like stuff like that wow. but the reason i was super into it is because of the really funny other stuff that they're selling like like for instance the world's okayest green chair uh that's literally what the description is of this thing uh like there and then, and then there's another one that's like the world's worst green chair so oh, that's great uh, that's if you want any of that kind of stuff go check out there's over 100 items on there i'm assuming these are all going to go for ridiculously high amounts of money cuz jack white has a lot of fans yeah. rightfully so um, but you know definitely something worth well, mentioning I, on the I always earbuds. i always loved his approach cuz he he did start by playing like the shittiest guitars on purpose you know like those yeah. old like unplayable silver tones not that those are sh- that shitty but like you know he really kind of kind of brought a lot of popularity to those and now all that stuff's going to sell for bundles so it's great mm-hmm. good for him yep his airlines and all that stuff and, yeah. there, and there's like you know like lights weird can lights oh, cool. and old school speakers and amplifiers and all kinds of crazy stuff it's it's going to be uh, pretty interesting to see what this stuff goes for so i'll definitely be checking back in on that nice. last thing for the old symphony here i wanted to mention cnc drums who uh, anybody that's played sort of like rock music in the last 20 years has probably come across a set of theirs at some point um, they're actually doing something really cool right now where they're making and then selling on reverb through the reverb shop snare drums uh, and each snare will correspond to a certain charity that they've selected to support black lives matter Um, so if you're in the market for a new snare right now i think they're all in the like 500 range really cool and interesting wraps on there Um, go to the reverb shop reverb shop i think it's just like reverb.com slash shop slash c dash and dash c and so you know if you want to both buy a snare drum and support a good cause that is an excellent way to do it right now yeah cnc makes kick-ass shit they're they're like fully custom pretty much aren't they they're like they'll do like something from the ground up just built for you right yeah, you know, I, I'll be honest, I haven't really checked back in on them in a while. I know for a while they're using Keller shells, and that was kind of the, I don't know if I would say like the dig against them, but they, they weren't always known for making hand-making their own shells. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the case anymore, but I do know that every CNC kit I've ever played just sounds fucking yes, good. Like, they're, they're just very solid, well-made drum kits. Hell yeah, um, man. And they're, and, and they're quite beautiful to look at, so go check those out. And with that all said, that is it for the symphony, and we get to go to my favorite segment every week, Dave's Docs. <laughs> I, you get me every time with it, man. I love it. Um, <laughs> dude, so uh, you'll like this one, Henry. And, and, you know, I we've talked about him a little bit on here. Um, you know, obviously one of the famous, most famous thrash metal bands in the entire world. I watched a Pantera documentary. Um, oh, shit. Now, I didn't watch, I didn't watch the Pantera documentary because... I don't know if they have a specific one, like an official one ever released, Um, but I watched, I didn't have a lot of time this week, so I actually watched, uh, which was recommended to me from a friend, the VH1 Behind the Music on Pantera. Nice. Hell um, yeah. You know, I would say this, this is a Dave's Doc uh, pro tip. If you're ever like in a situation where you want to cram and watch a doc and it's like, and you can find it online and it's like 45 minutes long, it's the best way to get kind of like a soup to nuts, you know, story of like from the youngest to the oldest stuff. Um, yeah. And, and kind of, you know, and all the way through, you know, obviously they leave out a lot of details, but, uh, dude, fucking Pantera 
rules, man. Uh, ruled. I don't know. However you want to say it. Uh, they were they yeah. were insane, bro. Like they. Oh, you don't have to tell me that, my brother. Dude, I didn't know they started out as a glam rock band in like the oh, early eighties. Sure they started dude, Diamond Diamond Daryl before he was Dimebag. Oh, really? Is that right? Yeah, yeah see, dude. Diamond. These are these are the fun things they leave out in the actual uh, in the in the behind <laughs> the music. So I'll, I want to yeah. find a better you know full length documentary, maybe a nice two hour three hour one because I feel like there was so much they didn't cover. Um, dude, here here's the thing about Pantera. They I I don't know if they're so they've there are a number of sort of documentaries, but the thing about Pantera is that they ever since the very beginning were super obsessed with always videotaping everything wow so there are literally weeks worth of video that they yeah. have just stored in this vault and, and throughout the years they've released all sorts of like backstage home videos dime bag uh guitar lessons all that kind of stuff so there is just like this unbelievable amount of material out there that i'm sure someday will lead to some sort of like tell all behind the scenes multi multi uh part oh, documentary yeah. or something I, yeah. like that I, I, I was surprised like if you google like pantera documentary like not not a lot comes up which is interesting but um i, I just loved and, and that kind of shows how seriously they took it with videotaping everything because you know they were basically saying they were ready for like arenas when they weren't even old enough to play bars yet you know because they were yep. basically teenagers or whatever <laughs> so um you know just fucking awesome uh you can find it on i think it's on youtube or daily motion or something but you can find the the vh1 behind the music um you know about pantera check it out if you got 45 minutes to kill um i won't spoil the ending but it's a very tragic tragic death yeah. I, I know a lot of people know um but yeah that was uh you know that that whole thing and i will say this they really didn't paint uh they really didn't paint uh phil in a very nice light in this in this uh in this particular version of their story um you know yeah. with with his with his run-ins with alcohol abuse and then eventually heroin and you know they basically they you know basically broke up as a band and then he went on to start like two other bands and he yeah, was super like, joint ritual down yeah uh, he's, he's, he had a couple super joint yeah that. super joint and down i think were the two that they mentioned in the movie but then he was like oh guys i'm just going on this hiatus and then next thing you know he's like oh actually we're going on tour with these other bands and we're going to record records and we're going on a second tour and recording a second record and these guys are like dude what the fuck man so you know unfortunately um you know, I don't think I don't know if they ever got to, got back together after that. Um, they they didn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, man, <clears throat> Pantera is probably of all bands that I truly love. The one that I struggle with the most mm -hmm. because of Phil, because he's also kind of and and he, and he is. I guess sort of apologize and try to move on from it. but he is kind of a known uh, white supremacist in some ways like oh. he's done some really really fucked up stuff oh wow um like white power stuff on stage and that sort of thing yeah um so that that's a really tough one because again like i've i've loved their music for most of my life um but then to learn about sort of just like the really shitty stuff that he's also done after that and i'll like even super joint i fucking love super joint ritual. yeah i don't know if you know but hank williams III was a bass player in that band oh okay yeah i'm familiar yeah. with him that's cool yeah, they rip. Yeah. Um, so uh, that, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, man. That's a tough one. And, you know, and then there was the whole thing, like there's kind of this, I don't even know if you want to call it a conspiracy, but there's kind of this idea that when he said in that article that he, he wishes somebody would like beat Dimebag's ass or something like that, that right, all came yeah. out like right before that guy, you know, took him out on stage. So it, it really, yeah. I don't know if that led to it, but it's like a lot of bad, a, really a lot of unnecessary tensions. It sounded like between those guys and, and of course the band made it sound like they were always reaching out and then he's like, they never reached out, you know, F them and this, this and that. So, um, I would say one of the, one of the, 
I don't want to say fastest rise to fame because they had that whole time, kind of like the Beatles, you know, where like before they came to the U.S., they had actually been touring and playing all over and they were actually really, really seasoned. But then they blew mm-hmm. up immediately. As soon as as soon as a record label got a hold of them, they, you know, they took off. So and then obviously didn't didn't last very long. So, um, yeah, fuck, I got to go back and dig into some Pantera, man. You know, it's definitely yeah, they're they're definitely probably one of the biggest you know metal influences of all time hands down so yeah unbelievable I, I i will say as someone that has taken the time to go back and listen to the pre cowboys from hell stuff yeah probably not worth your time because <laughs> okay. like the, everyone everyone talks about that as their debut album but you're right they released yeah. a lot before that yeah but and that was their sort of like yeah. reinvention um, right, so right. yeah, d- definitely don't, 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 don't spend too much time pre Cowboys, but yeah, that record <laughs> fucking rules. dude. All right. And I'll say even like their, their last record reinventing the steel, which I, it doesn't really get a ton of attention yeah. or, or accolades. I think that it's, it's incredible. I, especially tonally mm-hmm. one of the heaviest sounding records I've ever heard. And it's so clean and nice, but still just like pummeling. Oh yeah. my God. I, I, I could talk about Pantera forever. I love That's that great. Yeah, definitely, man. I, you know, I got to go back and check all this out. And I'm, I'm going to start with um, start with Cowboys from Hell and just kind of work my way up, you know, from there. So. All right. Well, what's your uh, what's your arbitrary ranking? Um, I give it a well, because it's a it's a behind the music. It's it's not an official documentary, I would have to say. Sure. Um, you know, it's it's kind of shortened. Um, I want to give it a four out of five Dean uh, Dimebag signature guitars. <laughs> yeah. Hell Yeah. <laughs> You know, I'll, before we leave this, I will say, like, real quick, you know, we were talking even actually before we even got on the phone with Steve here uh, about just kind of, like, how I'm in this this mode where I have all of the guitars I've pretty much ever wanted. Um, but as we're talking about this, I realized that, like, that it, that isn't true because yeah. I specifically want the – because uh, Dime went back and forth from Dean to Washburn a couple times. Right, but right. his Washburn Southern Cross, it's like a – a flame maple top with a cross on it. Oh, that particular yeah. guitar is the metal guitar that I've always wanted and will always want. And if you find them, they're like, you know, maybe 10 grand. Oh, really? They're so expensive. I, yeah. I think I told you one time uh, when I was, we were, we were playing out of town in like St. Louis or something. And uh, this guy uh, with Blaine and this guy showed up. Um, he had three dime bag Daryl guitars. He had the slime one. He had the lightning dime bolt. Slime. Yeah. The dime slime, dime bolt. the lightning bolt one. And then the all black one. And, uh, you know, and like at the end of the show, we kind of made buddies with these guys and he totally looked like Dimebag. He had like the big hair and he was kind of, you know, just a bigger guy. And, uh, we were like, dude, can we all take like a band picture holding your guitars? And he's like, fuck yeah. So somewhere, somewhere out there, there's a picture of the members of Blaine Fonda holding three separate, uh, Dimebag signature guitars, which I thought was oh pretty God. special. So, so there if you have it. If you guys it. ever reunite, that needs to be the album cover. I think. Oh, I agree. Hands down. Yep. Excellent. Uh, and you know, before we, you said Dime being a big guy, it, that's always been really surprising. He looks Dime big. was actually like very small. Really, he was like a very sh- yeah. He was like Tom Cruise tall. He was mm. not a big dude. Yeah, no but kidding. he had this like larger than life thing and played these really yep. big guitars. But if you look like the the sort of scale to from the guitar to him, he I mean I don't know his height off the top of my head, but I would guess maybe like five eight. Wow, like he was just like a kind of like a smaller dude. But yeah, yeah it's just I, like I always the saw giant him as this, like giant and yeah. giant beard and everything. So that makes sense. Yeah get your pool all right <laughs> well uh excellent dave's doc dude Thanks, i'll take buddy. any fucking opportunity to talk pantera yeah i know i know day. you'd like that one yeah uh well and i'm gonna well i'm gonna change gears a little bit for riff library and and not be, uh, talk about a metal album here uh, although now i kind of wish i could uh, i'm gonna take it back to 1999 for y'all Ooh. and a drag city release uh another one of my all-time favorite records and and actually i want to say before i get into this i was sort of reflecting on the riff library and like 
should I keep doing this every week? Is it worthwhile? And, 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 and I've decided that I definitely want to mostly because it's, it's been this opportunity for me to sort of revisit and dig back into some of my all time favorite records that maybe I kind of like forgot about a little bit or just hadn't really spent much time listening to recently. Mm. Um, and this is one of them. And this is, uh, a record by smog, uh, the sort of moniker of Bill Callahan and his seventh LP, which was called knock knock. Uh, again, it came out in 1999, uh, produced by Jim O'Rourke here in Chicago. Uh, it's, how do I even, how do I even describe this record? It's, it's, it's a breakup record, first of all. So <laughs> Bill Callahan, singer, songwriter, dude, um, had been kind of all over the place with the way he was doing stuff. Some of it was very sort of ornate pop. Some was more sort of like stripped back folk. And then this record has a much, a very direct, um, some of it is very sparse, but there, the, the thing that, that jumps out at me uh, most about the record is how, uh, economical you could say it is there there is nothing on that album that does not belong there Hmm. like some of the songs have a bunch of cello and and uh children's choir and shit like that but Hmm. it's never it's never there just to be ornamental it's always it always serves a purpose um but as i said it's a breakup record which i didn't really anybody that's ever listened to me talk about albums on here, I'm not always the biggest lyrics guy. Like I tend to listen to drums and the production and everything first, and then maybe eventually get to the lyrics. But this is one where the lyrics have always really sort of stunned me and and kind of uh, spoken to me uh, Mm. at a deeper level, but I didn't know. So this is actually a breakup record. Uh, He had been dating Chan Marshall, otherwise known as cat power. And um, they broke up. They were living in a place called, Oh, what was it? It was called, did I write it down? Yes, it was a town called Prosperity, South Carolina, with like a thousand people in it. Mm -hmm. They were living in this like barn house, broke up. He got in his van, drove from Prosperity, South Carolina to Chicago. And then the sort of mythology is that he wrote this record while driving here to Chicago. Um, Spent 10 days in the studio, had a bunch of sort of like uh, Chicago staple musicians at the time, people from like Vandermark Five and and such uh, playing on it. And um, man, I am telling you, it's just every song on that record bangs like it, yeah and and i say that not as like you know like a some sort of like club banger i just mean like <laughs> every song is super impactful uh it, it's it's I, I wouldn't call it a concept record but it does have sort of like this narrative arc throughout it um it starts with this song called let's move to the country which is has always been one of my favorite of his and then kind of like at the in the last track sort of puts a little button on it and kind of brings it back together but man if you're if you're at all interested in just like big roomy vibey production yeah cool drums in- intimate vocals some of the songs have like some almost sort of what might feel kind of out of place like chuggy guitars but more velvet underground than pantera oh, cool. um i just i i'm so happy that i that i busted this one back out and listened to it again this morning uh it's incredible such a such an amazing sounding record has not you know, aged a day since the late nineties. Yeah, of course cool. I didn't get into it until probably like the mid two thousands or something like that. And right. also I believe it had one of those songs on that record was on the high fidelity soundtrack. So, oh, um, you know, I was going to say, even like, if you're not super familiar, did you just hear about it? Cause is he a Chicago guy then technically, or is he like, no, like how did you hear about no. it? You know, it's, it's always weird to, th- to remember that. So I think it might've been, I had, um, growing up my dad's best friend was this like super fucking hipster indie rock dude that like made me mixtapes with 
tinder sticks and obscure uh, shit like yola tango and stuff on there and i think it might have been him that sort of hit me to it i don't know i do know that i bought it like it still has the reckless record sticker from 2008 when i bought it (laughs) on there so like and it was back when you could get a new album for 9.99 back in my day yeah which is probably like you know 20 bucks now so i don't know it could have just been on a lark it might have been from that i'm not sure it's really it's it's interesting to think about that where i sort of found some of this stuff but he's you know bill callahan's like a big name in the sort of like indie rock world okay. these days and especially in this like post pitchfork or i guess mid pitchfork world he, yeah kind of he definitely or... has a lot of accolades yeah. oh i gotta check this out man this sounds yeah. right up my alley love it yeah i think you dig it man hell yeah sick smog knock knock i'll throw that on the uh the old gearbuds playlist on spotify that you can also find on gearbudspodcast.com Sweet. Excellent. All right, that's enough of me rambling for a minute. Let's uh, let's get into our buddy Steve here, and this is where we uh, get into a couple two tree randos. So I'm just going to start asking you a couple random questions here and see how that goes. Uh, kind of, if a, you could, think of it as like a warm up. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, just a, just just a little getting getting to know you, a little icebreaker section here. Couple two uh, tree. If you could swap places with any band member, past or present, from any band, despite your or their musical talent, who would that be and why? Ah, oh, that's a tough one. I don't know if I could swap places. Could I just sit and listen to them play, be in there? That yeah, that yeah. that is it's it's every time we ask this question, people approach it from a different angle, and and it's always surprising me that yeah, that I feel like that is pretty common. Like people just don't yeah, you don't want to mess with their success. favorite acts. You know, if something's yeah, working. Some people are like, do you want like do you want to be Jimi Hendrix or do you want to just be like the conga player in Santana <laughs> or something like that? You know? Right. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of great bands that. You know, I love, I don't want to mix it up. I think, you know what I would love to do? Would be to go back to like 1994, 95 and just like play tambourine in fish. Sit right in front of Trey's oh, rig. Wow. <laughs> just put me right between oh, Trey's wow. two twin vertical 12, you know, cabinets. So I can <laughs> yeah, look at all yeah, his gear yeah. and listen to him rip. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's, that. So is that like uh what picture in Nectar uh, maybe? No, I don't know what, what record that. No, that was. I don't either. I mean, that was stitch and pass. I can't. My my fish is fading. um, I can't remember. I want to say what Billy Breathes was right around then, I believe, which is a fantastic record. That might be my favorite fish record. Steve Lillywhite did that one. It's killer. That song Billy Breathes is gorgeous. Like there's so much ear candy going on in there, and it's so deep. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. Anyways, I know that's kind of a polarizing band. Some people just hate them, and you know, I'm not totally in love with them these days, but. They were a huge band for mm-hmm. me through the, you know, mid to late '90s and the early 2000s mm-hmm. until I had to unplug for a while. But yeah, I'd love yeah. to go sit yeah, there and just yeah. listen to Trey do that thing that he was so he's still great at it. But there was a hot hot area there yeah. in the, uh, um, I guess mid to late '90s. Hell yeah, great one! I love uh, it. Man. What was your What was your first concert? My first one, World Amphitheater, Tinley Park, Hell 1993. Yeah. I think. Oh well, so okay, so that was your first fish. I, oh, uh, first I guess concert. More, more generally, <laughs> ever. Yeah. Uh, oh, we're called, let's let's take it way back. Um, Oak Ridge Boys, Braden Auditorium, Bloomington, Illinois, or Normal, Illinois. My parents oh, wow. took me. Nice. Yeah. And uh, do you, do you do you do you have do you have any specific memories from the show, or is it kind of just like a a story that you you know the family tells? Mm. Giddy up, boom, ba, boom, ba, 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 ba. <laughs> oh, wow. Remember that shit? Yeah, I remember that song, man. <laughs> my parents made me listen to that shit. Fuck yeah. I think I have my parents' vinyl copy of that that I keep here oh, in the studio. Oh, that's great. Once in a while, we'll pull out that shit and have a laugh. It's good stuff. Oh, that's badass. You know? All right. Um, 
do you other well, i mean i guess i guess maybe you just sort of answered the next question but i was going to ask do you do an impression or an accent not very well um other than the singer of the other, oakridge yeah boys, i was gonna apparently. say other than yeah, the I, do, I do that one horribly <laughs> i don't have a good one for you i'll have to maybe can i circle back on that one in a little while maybe yeah, i'll just pop it anytime. in um, yeah. It's perfectly reasonable just to say no. Yeah, yeah. no I is a pretty. A ding, I'm, I'm a ding dong. I'm not a voice with, a voice guy that way. Um, but there might be something that comes to mind later. Okay. Yeah, we'll see what Maybe happens. We'll see yeah, it pops out. Sorry to get lame on uh, that. And and you know, I, I'm as as I'm about to ask this next one, it occurs to me that you probably already know this uh, this this gentleman. Um, but last week's guest, Mr. Anthony Gravino, he has a question, uh, and he would like to know who is a record producer who you'll listen to a record just because they produced it. Um, Jonathan Wilson. Who who's Jonathan Wilson? I don't elaborate? know if I know who that is. Um, yeah, well, he is a producer, also a solo artist. Um, but I think he's best known for his work with Father John Misty, um, oh, and a few of the early is. few of the Dawes records. Um, what else is his solo stuff is kind of a benchmark for me sonically, and um. I don't know. I guess what about what about that? What do you, when you say benchmark sonically? What what yeah. sort of things are you hearing that you sort of I guess aspire to or, or try to bring into your music? Well, his um, he's he's into layers and things like that. That there's plenty of ear candy in there, but it's not. It's still very organic. It doesn't feel too techy, if for lack of a better term. Um, he loves his vintage instruments and things like that, and um, mm-hmm. he just seems to capture the whole spectrum. Um, I think what was that last? Not fanfare, but um, Rare Birds was his l- second to most recent record. Um, there are a few tracks in there that are just so lush and so deep, and I just I still use them as okay. I need to get my ears set in the morning at the studio, or if I'm listening to a new stereo someplace, or you know, you just yeah. want to hear. It's one you know you know how certain albums that's sound. Your, and, uh, that's your that's your that's your Steely Dan Asia. exactly. <laughs> and so um, I lo- I love his work. And he put out a new record that's a little more on the countryside. He took he went to Nashville and did it he, with Pat Sansone from Wilco. He produced. Oh, cool! And um, those guys are buds. I think Pat's um, arranged strings for him on a few of his past records. Um, but I don't know. I've just always been into his work, and his new record is really cool too. I think he actually put out some B sides or some acoustic versions of stuff from um, Dixie Blur's his latest record. And oh, cool. so, um, yeah, I can't wait to check that out. Yeah, he's yeah. fantastic. It's, it's like very his, rare that there's someone like that that I've just like never dug into. His early all. stuff is very like, um, I don't know. You might say like trippy and f- feels kind of hippie jam a little bit, almondsy at times and psychedelic at times, but very earthy. And um, he does some acoustic stuff that's just really tasteful and heartfelt. Um, so yeah, check out check out his work. I think you'll be impressed. Hell yeah, hell yeah, it's good stuff. That's great. Can't wait. He was um he was kind of like the Dar- the Laurel Canyon guy of our era. Gotcha. Um, oh cool. He kind of I think Jackson Brown kind of took him under his wing a little bit and oh really? Um, yeah, Chris Robinson. They would like he would host like these jams I think and at his place that he lived at or maybe still lives at in Laurel Canyon and kind of um uh, just became this hub for people out there and he's a very talented dude i think he's out of north carolina originally hmm. Sick. so yeah that's, that's my awesome. answer I, I, that beautiful might have been long-winded great sorry. answer no no that's no do, don't do not edit yourself that's what i'm for <laughs> uh last last question here uh what would you you don't get to know who it is but what would you like to ask our next guest oh, shit 
Are they an engineer, <laughs> producer, somebody like me, or any? Is it uh, just someone in the musical world? EQ yeah. before compression or after? Oh, all right. <laughs> that's a that's a that's going to be a divisive oh, one. Where do you stand? I'm. I go both ways, but um, usually <laughs> usually before. Yeah, Ma- EQ before, right? Yeah, like you can. In, yeah. uh, I can't say it. EQ into compression, but I don't know. That's a, kind of a soft I guess, question. You know, it's a lot of yeah, because a lot of people will even do like you know maybe uh, like some like a real sort of easy like an LA two A or something, and then an EQ, and then maybe something a little more fast and, and active like a I don't know eleven seventy six or something like that. So you can you can do it both ways pretty easily. Yeah, you can do about anything if it sounds cool, then it's cool. Like <laughs> there's right. really no, no I like that right way for this stuff. But we like to oh, ask dumb questions cool, like that, cool. right? Oh, that's what we're here for, and, and that is that is definitely going to make it into my little write up uh, for the for the episode. That's for sure. It right. sounds cool. It's cool. Uh, all right, man. Well, that was that was a, a pretty excellent couple two true randos. Let's just let's just dig deep here into into your history. So take us back. Um, like, where did you grow up? Where uh, when did the sort of musical bug bite you? How did you get into playing and, and recording music and all that kind of stuff? Uh geez, I grew up in Bloomington, Illinois, two and a half hours south of Chicago, right in the middle of the state, and. Um, I grew up singing in choir, you know, church and stuff like that from a very early age mm-hmm. and sang through choirs all the way through high school. Um, but somewhere along the line, I think my mom asked me if I wanted to play an instrument. Uh, I think it was about third or fourth grade. And I chose, I said I wanted to play the guitar. And she said, why? I said, because John Denver plays guitar. And so I grew up with John Denver in my house, right, right along with the Oak Ridge Boys. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, at that age, he was kind of the dude that I thought was cool. And so, um, yeah, I just started playing acoustic guitar and, um, that, you know, like most kids that leads to electric guitar or maybe some lack of interest in guitar until electric becomes part of the equation. They're like, Oh, this is a whole new world. Mm -hmm. I could, I could (laughs) learn Van Halen or try to at least, you know, (laughs) (laughs) or I could just hit a power chord and stand in front of my head for a minute. All that, all that. And so, you know, played in bands through high school and college, um, went to Miami University in Ohio and played there and started this I took a couple of classes on recording um they were kind of useless but um they kind of kept me fueled and interested in the recording side of thing side of things and um from there I think our band moved to Cincinnati for a year after college and we kind of pittered out there fell apart but I started to get into recording on the computer which was becoming a possibility and this is like 97 mm, and okay, uh sure. i had this the, the donna pro tools era yeah it was just becoming a thing uh pro tools had been around probably for a couple years at that point under I th- maybe i forgot what the original maybe sound designer or something like that but yeah i think that's what it's called um i didn't have that i had this software called saw s-a-w software audio workshop and it was just this Ooh. really archaic software but it's it's what i got started on mm-hmm. and um you know, started learning how to do things in there and, you know, did some really bad recordings and eventually got an internship right after um, college at this ADAT studio up in Cincinnati. And from there, I knew I wanted to take it a little further and our band was dissolving and the other guitarist in the band was from New York and moved back to New York. And he's like, man, you ought to come out here. I was thinking of going to LA and trying to make a go of it there. But he's like, no, come to New York. I think I can line you up with the job. So I got out there and um, my, the job didn't happen. But um, he helped me find another one in a place where he was working. And so through the years, I started this place, Three Tree Productions, in the back room, transferring reel-to-reels to CDR, 
And then, um, you know, they did a lot of advertising there. And then I got a gig at the Hit Factory for a little while, oh, cool. which was, you know, a big, huge commercial studio that, you know, kind of blew my mind. I was yeah. way underqualified, but um, <laughs> knew somebody that kind of knew one of the owners and said, just give Steve a chance. He's a good person. You know, he probably doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. But <laughs> when they're, you know, they're hiring, you know, assistants at that level, it's, you're more of a runner and oh, yeah. a helper, a gopher, whatever you want to call it. And so I, I got in there. And that was pretty amazing because I got to be around amazing gear and um, some huge people that, you know, at times I didn't even know who they were. Like, I was in I, what's, I was in Studio One setting up, like, the lounge or something one morning, and this woman walks in. She's like, is Amit here? And I'm like, who? Well, she was looking for Amit Erdogan, who, you know, <laughs> you know and he was in, you know, starting a session that I was going to be on for a week with Anita Baker was the artist and Nathan East was her bassist and Amit Erdogan oh, and Arif. Arif Martin and Ahmed Erdogan were producing, and um, who, what's his name? Um, I forget. Steve. Steve. Um, he plays in the Heartbreakers. The drummer, Steve Ferroni, was the drummer, oh, and so it was just like all these crazy talented people around me um, that you know didn't want anything to do with me. But it was just amazing to see them work at you know that point in my life where I had very little experience, but it was very motivating yeah. and exciting and. Other than the sort of just like being around all this <clears throat> sort of incredible gear and musicianship, is there anything from that time that now as as a person who's had a lot of success in his career doing it professionally, is there anything that you can sort of draw from that directly and say like, if not for this experience, I wouldn't do this or that now? Um, That's a hard one. I think the thing that I remember most from those sessions is all those really talented people were really nice and cool. Okay. They weren't yeah. dick. Yeah. You know what I mean? They like people want to work with people that are cool and nice and just yeah. generally treat you with respect. And those people I remember Nathan East would he was asking me, Hey man, do you get to come here and cut demos and stuff? I'm like, hell no, they don't let us do that. But <laughs> um, But he's asking me and I was like, What do you Yeah, you know, it's like just real questions from like he, just a just a normal guy. Yeah, he yeah. was just and that was that was inspiring to see just their general behavior. And Steve Froney was the same way and Anita Baker would ask you questions about the gear and I'm just like, What? Wow. Um, and so awesome. um, that, w- that was just really cool. The management at the Hit Factory was kind of tough to be under sometimes. They kind of kept you living in fear of losing your job. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And eventually I did lose my job there um, because they have very high turnover and just there was no reason except that they had somebody else they wanted to bring in and had only so much space. Sure. And so I was pushed out, and but it was a stroke of luck because uh, another friend who ran a jingle shop called Pink Noise, where he was a producer there um, down in Soho, He's like, hey, man, we're looking for an assistant. Um, we could use you. And the pay was way better, and I got benefits. And So I started there and ended up uh, working there for about five years. Uh-huh. Um, and so we do what all were, kinds of – What were you doing there? We would do – I started off as you know just a general assistant helping set up sessions, but by the time I left, I was producing and engineering. Um, but we did a lot of music for advertising. You know, if you need mm-hmm. you know, toothpaste commercials, visa ads, whatever, like all kinds of stuff. But it was cool. amazing at that point in um, time. It was just before like the whole, we'll call it like the Moby effect or whatever, when he started licensing tracks from his records for advertising. Oh, yeah. Wasn't, cha- there, wasn't there that one record where he, he like every single song was licensed? It could have been. Um, yeah. I, I forgot. Play maybe is the name of that record? I think mm-hmm. it was Play. Yeah. But, you know, that, that was kind of a wave that changed that whole market. And um, before then, we were, you know, original music was needed. Like people were... They would, you yep. know, budgets were sick. They would hire, you know, you guys write these tracks. Here's two grand to cut some demos. 
All right, we're gonna pick one, and then the budget's thirty grand for you know a sixty and a cut down to a thirty, and we could get union you know contracted musicians and go to big studios and that. So that was super cool because I yeah. got to I got to work in some places that were you know were just like the Hit Factory, if not cooler. Um, and but we'd also we had a small you know shop in Soho that was very archaic. It, it, first, we ran everything on a Synclavier, which was, I don't know if you're familiar with those, but oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were, that was like our main recording rig. They had this thing called the Post Pro that was like six feet tall. It was a computer. You didn't need a heater <laughs> in the whole place because the thing ran so hot. But um, we would, I think it had like 16 tracks in maybe, or two tracks in and 16 out. I don't remember, but it was um, a di- hard disk recorder, and it sounded pretty amazing. Um, mm. It just, you couldn't see the waveform. you just see like blocks moving across your screen you know um but that was you know i learned how to use that and that was kind of cool but eventually there was my boss was like we got to get pro tools and i just before i took this job i got i took a course on how to like i learned i think i'm a certified pro tools for user um and so (laughs) um things have evolved quite a bit since then but um yeah that was so that was the he's like all right you're gonna be my guy to build a pro tools rig and so I, th- I don't know what we spent then, or what he spent. I'm gonna say it's fifty grand or somewhere around there. Right, you know, sure. with interfaces <laughs> and you know computers and SCSI drives. I don't know if you remember that stuff, but um, hot swapping hard drives. Yeah, that was a big deal. And you had like a nine gigabyte hard drive. So and that was a big. You know, that was as big as it got. But you know, um, this, this session for this podcast is probably about nine. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, but anyways, one um, one. I think it was like the, I can't remember what year it was, but there was a snowstorm blizzard in New York and Manhattan was basically shut down. It was, it was a week between um, Christmas and New Year's. And so I'd come back to New York right after Christmas and we got this storm and it just shut the whole city down. It just so happened to be the same week that I planned to build this Pro Tools rig. So we had all the parts there. Everything had been delivered. It was just time to put it all together and integrate it into the studio and kind of decommission the Synclavier. And so I did that and it just, kind of really lit a fire in me about equipment and knowing how all this stuff worked. Da, da, da. It was um it was a very memorable um winter term if you want to call it that or winter week because like I said mm-hmm. Manhattan was just closed down and I'd walk there and nobody was coming to the studio. I think Coldplay's Parachutes record had just come out and I I really liked that record. And um yeah. I listened to that all the time and just sat there figuring out how to put this rig together. And so, I don't wow, know. What a, what a baptism by fire that is. Yeah, right it was, yeah, it, eventually it all worked. But, you know, my boss, would he was like in over his head. He had no, you know, some people get computers and some people don't. He was not one of them, really. And, you know, things would go haywire. And Stevie, what the fuck? I don't know. Right. You know he's like <laughs> freaking out at me over the phone or, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> Did it, you turn it off and turn it back on? Yep. <laughs> right. Power Did cycle it. <laughs> Check your buffer settings. Um, anyways. So that was, I mean, I'm giving you a very long-winded story here, but... Uh, oh, this is great, man. I love it. So what, so obviously you're here in Chicago now. What sort of led you to, to make the leap from New York back to the Midwest here? Well, I'd started working with bands and stuff after hours at night while I was in New York and really enjoyed that. And after a while, um, New York takes its toll on you. I was there for about six years, and I just, I knew, I kind of wanted to go out on my own. Um, my, mm-hmm. my boss at Pink Noise was great. And he wanted me to be a partner there, and I decided, okay, I think I want to go do this on my own and kind of start fresh. But I knew I didn't want to do it in New York because it'd be another decade before I get my head above water. It's just right, okay, such sure. an expensive pl- place. And I knew I was engaged at the time too. I didn't, and now I'm married. Um, but um, 
I didn't really want to start a family in New York just because of the cost and the complications that come with that. And so sure. my wife was from um, Chicago suburbs, and I was from Bloomington. We're like, well, let's go to Chicago. I can still kind of tap into some music for advertising there and keep chasing the band thing. And so we moved here, and I worked out of our first apartment in the second bedroom there on uh, Wolcott Division for a year and quickly realized that or learned through my wife's um, constant yelling, can, you know, she just couldn't stand hearing music constantly coming from the back room. Yeah. And, you, and you guys know how it is when you're working on a track in a recording situation, you hear the same part over and over and over and over. And oh, oh, yeah. You don't mind over. focusing on that because you're doing <laughs> it. But when you're yeah. in the other room and you hear that, that's annoying as fuck. And mm-hmm. so, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, yeah, you just get sick. Sure and, and maybe it has something to do with the quality of music I was working on at the time, but she was not having it. And so I learned to have or that I needed to get a space. And so yep. I got my first space, Shirk Studios version one. I was on North Avenue um, and Wolcott in this like timber loft. And I took a lease for a place and I stupidly built a booth in it. Um, I had a one year lease and I spent maybe, <laughs> I took a, I got a loan for about 10 to 15 grand or something like that. And I built a booth. And about uh-huh. n- about nine months into my lease, I get a, a letter from my landlord saying the building's been sold and it's going to be demolished. Oh and so as, as you know, you can't really walk away with a booth once you build something like nope. that, you know? Not quite. But yeah. I did pull a lot of stuff out. I mean, I, I had a lot of, what do you call it, that insulation, rigid fiber insulation, mm-hmm. yeah. the 703 and stuff like that. And I, I kind of just got everything I could when I got out. So I started renting studios that I found on Craigslist and was like, I'm not putting any money into a space until I own it. So I rented a place for a while on Kinsey and Ashland there, and this it used to be like I, it, it's just, I think that's when we met. I think you might have been in that right by those train I tracks. First, yes. Yeah. yeah and, it was. Uh, it's, it was. I was on the top floor. Yep. Um, yeah, I remember that. I think I had this space that this DJ slash producer guy Maurice Joshua had. Um, he, I think he, he went on to work with Beyonce and stuff like that. I don't even know if he's in Chicago anymore, but I had his studio for, I don't know, two years until that place turned into a rehearsal studio nightmare mm. and then rented another spot. And I know this is where we worked together, Henry, um, on green street. And it, it that was, um, it's like green and superior right off Chicago Avenue by the Tribune oh, printing plant right there. Yeah, and that's totally. where I think we did a session with Tom Schrader's band. We did. That's right. That was the, uh, the here session. Yeah, we did that. And that's where, uh, Dave, where we did the session with the Sapiens. Okay, yeah, I was trying to remember like around what area that was. Yes. I knew it was in River West over here, but yeah, right. That was a cool studio, man. I remember it was cool. It was a Craigslist find, and really, you want to know some history on that place? It was called, I think it was originally built as Battery Studios, uh, hmm. which was kind of a uh, family of studios around the world and well known. Like they won awards for you know great studios, um, and then it, Jive Records had it for a while. And then a few other people had it. And then at one point, R. Kelly had it. Um, mm. And that's where they recorded I Believe I Can Fly. Um, oh, shit. Yeah, big big track for old Rob. Did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't know that at the time either. But uh, there were some weird things about that studio, like blinds that went down between the control room and the live room. For what reason, yeah. I never quite understood. They weren't like curtains right. for acoustic reasons. They were Venetian blinds. Oh, that's um, so strictly for privacy, <laughs> which yeah. is okay. Strange. That's a weird thing to have. So what? fucked up. Doors that kind of locked the wrong way, and it was all kinds Ew. of weird. Yeah. Okay. Creepiness. So eventually, I had to get out of there. They kept raising the rent, and there were some things that didn't work. And I had some neighborhood issues with. There was this dude that parked his 
like monster truck next to this. I think he worked nearby and he had this 10, 15 foot, you know, floppy like CB radio antenna. You know what I'm talking oh, about? Yeah. Those things on a spring yeah, that like yeah. whip around. Ridiculous. Yeah. Every time this dude would drive by my studio, I'd get this like I'd hear him talking <laughs> and it would come in the middle of a session. It would get in the recording, all kinds of crazy shit. Oh, dude. It didn't happen yeah. all the time. It was infrequent enough where I was like, where is that coming from? Until one yeah. day I was looking out the window as he drove by and I heard it happen. And I'm like, that truck's got a massive antenna. This has got to be some hopped up CB radio thing that, you know, it's coming from there. So I just, every time I happened, it happened, I'd look out the window and I'd see this truck. So how did, how did you wind up uh, in your, your, your forever home? How did I get here? I, yeah. well, I was done with that, that fucking place. And Neil Ostrovsky owned this place called B-Side Audio. And um, he was ready to sell. And I had looked at this for a few years um, when he had it listed. And um, eventually, you know, I'd seen that he had had it listed for like two years and knew he probably wanted to get out. And I wanted to get a place. Um, we looked at a lot of different places. And it just made sense to get in here. And so I bought it. Um, and it was a, and what, around what year was this that? This is 2013. And okay, so cool. that's when we closed. So it was a long, drawn-out process to buy it. So we started it in early 2012. But we had to, I, I wanted to have the zoning change so it, was, it could be a re- proper recording studio. Nobody could kick right. windows, you know, that sort of thing. Yep. And so that just takes forever to get through City Hall and all that stuff. Um, but, um, yeah, I got in here at the, I want to say we closed on February 1st of 2013, and I did my first session. It was a Heria session with um, field report on March 1st. And so it was like a real fast turnaround. Um, yeah, every- a month to get built out. There. Yeah, That's pretty crazy. Everything worked and it was a, it was a, you know, a great situation. It was already built as a studio. So that was, that was, you know, the structure was in place. Right. Right. Just had to bring the gear in and you know how it is like setting up your gear. You think everything's great and then you realize little problems along the way. And yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, trial by fire, we got in and started doing sessions and, so we've we've talked about Hiria a couple times <clears throat> now. Um, how did that sort of relationship develop? Because I mean, if anybody doesn't know, there there are just uh, I don't even know how many hundreds, right? Of, yeah, of we did, we probably did one hundred and thirty or one hundred and twenty or something like that. It was it's not an insane amount. Um, it's still quite a bit. It was enough, a yeah, of, it was enough, and it was a it was a big sense. learning curve too. If you listen to number one and then listen to number one hundred twenty, <laughs> you can you hear a big swing there. Sure. Um, but. Uh, yeah, that was a fun um, situation, how that all fell together. I went down to South yeah, by what, Southwest. What it, yeah, it was at South by for the first time. I want to say it was like 2006. And I got down there. I had no idea what what we were doing. My wife and I went down. We had a friend that lived in Austin. And she's like, yeah, you can stay with us and just take the bus downtown to South by. And so I did. I bought the badge and like went to the fucking conference stuff, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which isn't bad, I suppose. But I thought it was really boring. I was like, "This is there's got to be more to this, you know. Yeah, I'm. I'm yeah, there's, missing. There's a big difference I'm, between week one and week two of South by. Yeah, oh, yeah, I was missing a lot of you know just the shows and stuff like that. I didn't have. Um, I was not traveling in a group. I was kind of floating around by myself, and so, um, I reached out to a friend who mentioned that he had a buddy that goes down to South by every year, and um, I'd done a record with this guy Tim, and he's like, "You got to talk to Woody. He'll be down there." And so I hit Tim up and. Tim gave me Woody's number. I texted Woody. He's like, yeah, man, meet us at a bar on whatever, 6th Street. We're watching a band. And this is like 11 in the morning or 12, you know, early. And uh, I went over there and met up with he and Scott Osler. And um, they are, I didn't know either of them, but we hung out, saw some bands, and got to talking about this blog that they had just started called Hear Ya. And they were just, 
you know, what he's an insurance salesman or insurance guy, and Oz is like a tech guy or something who now lives in Kansas City. And they just um, love bands and love writing about them and talking about mostly drive-by truckers. But um, they, um, we had the idea after after hanging out for a couple of days, we kind of hit it off. We're like, well, yeah, we should maybe do a like a session or something. I think Day Trotter was just kind of becoming a thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we're like, let's f- copy them. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so we did that. And broke. We did it way less frequently. We were more like one every couple weeks or sure. you know, a couple of months, that sort of thing. But it was a just a kind of a happenstance meeting, and um, we hit it off, and it was the beginning of a fun relationship where we got to do. I think the next year we came back and threw a party, you know, or we had bands come play, and we did that maybe two or three years in a row. You know, we thought we were big swinging dicks for a while, like. <laughs> yeah, just, right. You know, like, yeah, we're throwing a party at South by. Yeah, <laughs> super cool. Well, you know, it's really not that cool, but uh, it was fun times, and um, the sessions themselves were fun. It introduced me to guys like you, and uh, you know, it was. Yeah, it was, and I mean, there are some really awesome ones to listen to. Again, if anybody listening has never checked these out, I mean, yeah. you already mentioned Drive By Truckers. There's a Patterson Hood one that I remember you doing. There's Alabama Shakes, right. Strand of Oaks, White Denim, and then of course, if you ever want to hear me play some like lead guitar you can check out the tom shredder and his ego <laughs> there tom you shredder. go tom schrader and his ego, uh, session, <laughs> uh, which uh you know we've been talking recently we're gonna get him on the show soon too, oh yeah but, go. Uh, what is he doing they sound i mean he's you know tommy's out in brooklyn New York, uh right? yeah he's uh he's doing i mean he's still still making music for sure i think he his focus is a little bit more on the the film scoring world these days gotcha. well, that's cool. um but, i think he was know. he worked with uh our, our former guest uh cj johnson on a on a film yep Yep, cool. he's done some stuff with him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so, cool. yeah, Tommy, Tommy's doing all right. Shout out to our buddy T Shredder. Yeah, uh, and 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 they just sound so good. So I'm I'm Thanks, curious, man. like, back from, did you already? You know, I can't remember. It's been such a while, a long time ago. Did you already have that Sphere console at that point? No, no, I had. I bought a NeoTech console. Um, shit, what year? Maybe 2007 or something. Um, so I had that at the space where you know where we worked together over on Green mm-hmm. Street. And then I got this fear when I moved over here in 2014. Um, got it. Okay. Yeah, but I did. I did a lot of outboard preamps and stuff like that, and just used the NeoTech mm-hmm. kind of as a. You know, it, it had good preamps, but uh, I was into outboard stuff at the time. Um, yeah, yeah I mean, if you fun. look at the, at your website, man, I mean, they're the of course oh, being yeah. gear buds. Like we have to spend a little time talking about the gear. Oh yeah, I'll it talk is, about gear all day long. Definitely. A murderer's row of stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously we already t- you've got the full Pro Tools rig, like any sort of professional studio has to have you've got that mci 16 track two inch um i mean i i I personally don't know much about sphere console so i would love for you to kind of give us just a little bit of rundown like how you decided to choose that Mm -hmm. and and what that sort of means to your work and and how you decide uh, the decisions that you make as a producer well um as a studio owner having a console is kind of an important piece of the puzzle it fills in that mental image that customers have of what a studio is supposed to have you know mm-hmm. whether or not it gets used in the traditional ways that depends but um sure i wanted a console you know i liked my neotech it was cool the eqs were nice all that the preamps were kind of underwhelming and the headroom was very underwhelming you can't push it very hard and so they're oh. they're becoming um moments where i just was kind of tired of the neotech it felt like a big routing device and not really a tone machine not it's yeah, sure. not a tone tube um so, <laughs> nice. so um i uh just i this one came up and i didn't know a lot about spheres to be honest like 
I just I knew I was looking for something new, and I'd heard about Sphere because I think they had one for a little while over at Engine before Engine closed down. They did, and um, I knew that they were just unique, and that was that's always been something that I've been attracted to, like how certain studios would have a certain console, like Trident. You know, they had their Trident custom Trident consoles mm-hmm. and that sort mm. of thing, and like. Everybody these days knows Neve and API, which amazing right. consoles. Do not get me wrong. They're fantastic tools. Um, but I just didn't want to do an, another thing. A, because I can't afford a vintage Neve um, or afford to maintain one. And B, that's, I just... Yeah. Better point, yeah. Yeah, I just <laughs> wanted to... Where is something... What's something that's unique? You know, well, how can we kind of make a name for ourselves or something a little different? And I think that's important and sort of being lost in the studio world. You go into a lot of places, and you know some places are very well appointed where they have one of everything. You know, 1073s mm-hmm. and API 312s, and you know, you can choose just about anything you want, which is totally a nice thing if you can afford to do that. Great, I can't. Um, but let's let's give ourselves some sonic identity by having a unique console that um, and sonically these fall in between an API and an Eve with the you know the weight of maybe the weight of an Eve and kind of the aggressive upper mids of a API, maybe not quite as aggressive, but like I said, falling in the middle. It's um, these our base sphere consoles are basically a descendant of the Electrodyne design, and they've kind of perfected the design. The Sphere was a, a custom console company where they only made 60, 70 consoles between I don't know the mid 70s through the early 80s. And there's probably 20. Is it a is it a British company? No, no, no. It's American. And oh, um, American yeah, company. Reichenbach Transformers, and um, which I think Cinemag runs those now, and like Jensen Output Transformers, and all all American okay. parts. You know, nothing is too hard to get except the levers that make up these crazy nine band graphic EQs. Um, those are somewhat unobtainium, but there there are people holding, but it's just pricey. Yeah. But they're um, they're a cool console. They all discreet, class A, um, lots of headroom, lots of punch. Um, you can drive them hard and get a little juice out of them, but they don't break up like the Electrodynes, their predecessor did mm-hmm. do. Um, just they just have more headroom. They were designed to have more headroom. They wanted cleaner and and more precise and more open. And so it's just kind of the final evolution of that Electrodyne um, Quad Eight style design. And uh, so are so is it? Are you? I would imagine the answer is probably yes. But are you using it both for tracking and mixing? Ch- uh, like, is it? Is it sort of? Are you using it in that sort of hybrid way? Uh, yeah, yeah. I um, definitely track through it. It's um, I don't own many outboard preamps, and so I'm always using the console preamps. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and I, I love them. And it's you know I had who was here the a couple weeks ago? Dave Schiffman, this producer engineer from LA, was in doing a record and. You know, I had a couple outboard pre's, and he's like, no, I really kind of want to just use the console because it gives, gives it, you know, there's a cohesive sound. There's a, mm-hmm. something, so there's a thread between all of the sources because of that. And, you know, I, I agree wholly. It's, um, there's just something about doing it that way. And I love the simplicity in your decision-making process when you're setting up a session or getting things going and, like, not sitting there thinking about, okay, you should I match this mic with this Neve Pre and this mic sounds better yeah. and through an AP, you know, like, sure. That's all cool. And it's, if you have the time, that's great. But if I'm sitting there wasting time at the top of the session while my clients are it's in there like, yeah, Steve's fucking around with preamps, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is not cool. Right. Let's go I love lunch, the yeah. simplicity of like, I got some great pre's here. We're plugging in. They sound awesome. Let's go and stop thinking Hell about yeah. that. Let's think about your performance and the sound that's actually it. coming out of the speaker. So, um, I like it for that. Do you have sort of like, 
I don't know, a tracking template where like, you know, to your point, like, you know, all right, I'm generally drums are going to be on channels one through 10 or something like that. And it's yeah, always like kinda. kicks here and you, and you know, sort of like you're going to make the s- same certain moves with, with the same mics. Yeah. Well, I try to mix the mics up, you know, where things fall on okay. the console, I tend to put them in the same places just cause it's like a, yeah. you know, logistical kind of ergonomic thing. Like here they are. I know I can get to them quick. I don't have to think about it because I always put them in the same place. But the mics, I try to mix up. Um, I have some go-tos. I mean, obviously, I'm using 57s and stuff like that all the time. But it's, yeah. I try to mix it up because I think it makes it more fun. And, um, you know, if it's not sounding right, obviously, you got to go back to your home base. But, you know, I'll mix up what I put on the snare, let's say, or kick drum. Sometimes I'll use a different mic than, than the FET 47 style. I'll do something different just to to learn something new that session. I think that's kind of an important thing as an engineer, like always totally changing up what you're doing so that you, you learn the limitations of your gear that way and find out what really works and what doesn't. Are, and, are there any sort of like, I uh, kind of on the other side of the coin, are there any really specific chains or, or processes you always adhere to? Like, hmm. you know, I love to ask, like, do you have like a specific vocal chain that's always your kind of go-to yeah. or, or do you have any sort of things like that that are always just like, all right, this is bread and butter. I know it's going to work every time. Yeah. Well, work every time. I think, um, yeah, like it's tough to say what's the best microphone for everybody, but if I had to choose one as a starting point, it'd probably be the U67. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, it just like, it's a, it's a workhorse. It's hard yeah. to make the thing sound bad. You know, sometimes people want a little more top and the 67 doesn't have that inherently. So maybe you add it with EQ. Um, but I don't usually track with EQ, you know, on a vocal, for example. But I'll usually mm-hmm. track into the Sphere Pre, 67 to the Sphere Pre. Um, and then I'll hit my go-to tracking compressor for vocals is the Highland Dynamics BG2. Um, I don't know that dude, one. My They're my favorite. I've got two of them. Um they just, it's hard to make them sound bad. And I, this guy, uh, Bryce Gonzalez out in Los Angeles makes them and BG Bryce Gonzalez. Um, this was his kind of first production. Like he'd been making these things as one-offs for people for a decade, I think. And finally was like, I'm going to start a company, started Highland Dynamics and he started putting these into production. And now he's got the BG one and the BG two. And, but anyways, the BG two is kind of like a, um, an RS one twenty four which was at, uh, I think, Abbey Road maybe use those a lot on a lot of Beatles records. Okay. It does a little bit of that, but it's it's got this switch where you can go from British to American, and the American style is more like an RCA BA6A in terms mm-hmm. of behavior. And um, so you've got kind of two tone circuits built right in at the flip of a That's switch. Awesome. It is cool. And the output stage on it is a twin 6V6 tube configuration which you know you're familiar with those through amplifiers yes sir so that's the same you'd find that same output stage in um the rca ba6a or like a gate stay level or that sort of thing so Mm -hmm. anyways it's got a lot of weight but it's also really forgiving you can push it way into compression and it doesn't give you this pumping you know thing it's just a cool device and so i love that for tracking it's um it can be transparent or you can you can kind of put into American mode and really get some more harmonics and gush out of it. Man, but, badass. I can't wait to go down a rabbit hole learning everything yeah. about those now because that's Yeah, neat. they're really <laughs> cool. Sure. And I learned about those because I'm a fan of Jonathan Wilson and he posted yeah. some picture of it and I was like, what? That? Like, and then I learned about Bryce and this was around the time Bryce started, you know, going into production with these things. And so it's just follow your favorite producers and you'll probably learn about some 
new gear yeah. that, that you, you know shouldn't lust after but do yeah some some new things i'll get to go in debt over yeah right <laughs> right like that. right but it's you know that i gotta say like buying gear from guys like that is really fantastic it's like buying an amp like you you like balthazar amps it's like buying from balti like you know the guy that's making it yes and you can like i text with bryce like, i don't know every other week just about hey man what would you do here? Or how did you do this? Or why is it doing this? Do I need new tubes? You know, how do I balance mm-hmm. this if it needs a little bit of work? Um, I love having that relationship with gear manufacturers. It's um, yeah, it's, it's incredible. You can it's a feedback loop, and 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 you're a person that's really using it, so that is valuable feedback for that person as a maker for their business. Yeah, absolutely, right. absolutely. Man, and I'm so glad you brought up Balti too, because I just I'll, I'll always talk about him and his amps. I was texting with him yesterday, but I've got a couple of them. And man, that I mean, the Film Noir 50 is is like has become maybe my just like favorite big amp of all time. Gotcha. Um, but these days, man, that Cabaret 13, I'm playing it every single day. Yeah. And and I can't and I cannot. I can't, look. I think you know. I mean, we've already talked about this like in, in the past, but you've got that 66 Vibrolux that. I I still remember plugging into that amp and being like, "Holy shit! I need to get rid of my twin." <laughs> like that was just like for that session. I've never that that was. I'd always been into guitars and pedals and stuff, but I'd maybe I was pretty young too. But I'd also kind of seen amps as just like I don't know. It's like the end of this thing. It makes stuff louder. But there was just like that is a special amp, and and I still feel that way. But man, this this Cabaret Thirteen, like I can't I can't sing its praises enough. Like if you were looking in that sort of one by ten Princeton world with the reverb and a trim built in, I mm. there is nothing better. There is nothing better than that amp. I, I got to put my I gotta listen to that put thing. my line in the sand there. It's so fucking rad. You can check mine out. I'm sure he'd love to have you over to his shop. And yeah. check it out too i've got a film uh, they've got one at cme now uh, i've got the 18 and i yeah. think i'm gonna bring it over to his shop because he did a couple of, he's got like a version two tweak i think with a couple different cap values or something like that yeah Slight EQ yeah i'm actually I'm, I'm working on that with him oh cool uh, it was over there a couple of weeks ago um just like with you know one one stock and one that he's making all these tweaks and we we're just going back and forth trying all these things and it's and it's interesting too because I you can't say one is better than the other they're just it's like kind of a different thing right, you know because right. like going back to that stock film noir fifty I still it's just kind of perfect for what I like to do but I could see why some of these tweaks that we're working on would be really useful for people that are are active gigging musicians like having an effects loop and mm-hmm. um, doing a tone stack bypass that sort of thing um, but yeah people if you don't know it already go go back back and listen to the episode when he was on the show but also just go buy a fucking balthazar just get it they're insane (laughs) they're They're so good but to quick i wanted to go back to sort of we talked a little bit some of your like tracking preferences Mm -hmm. but i one of the things i always like to ask people that are mixing all the time in in that in that world are there any sort of um you know, uh, tips or anything that you can share with our listeners that are certain things that you do all the time, no matter what, like, you know, a good example is is some, I I think it's pretty common, like on a kick drum, just to, to, to take a a big dip out around 500 Hertz to get some of those mids out of there. Yeah. Are there any, any things like that, that you're kind of like always doing almost independent of the material or the, the source? Um, yeah, I think so. There's, um, some of them are in the box and some are out. Um, yeah. On my two bus, I have a pair of Pultex. They're the Pulse Techniques, like the reissues, I guess, that um, Steve Jackson makes. Like the EQP1A type? Yeah, yeah. And I put those on the two bus always and crank up to 10K or something. You know, sometimes I'll go to 8, sometimes I'll go to 15 or, or 16 or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, that just opens up. It's hard to make those things sound bad either. They're magic. 
um, crack open the top end on your two bus with those. And it never gets like, it's always just like, Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, oh dude, a pair, a pair of Poltex is at the top of my sort of like dream outboard list. I, I, I'm, I'm a big UAD fan and use all their stuff and you, and literally every single piece of music I've ever recorded or mixed has found some, somewhere to put those Poltex. Yeah. They just like, they're just like a make better machine. You exactly. just do a little bit of tweak and there. Everything sounds a little bit cooler. Totally. I, I have Anthony and I bought, a pair together i want to say like five years ago maybe i bought one and he bought one there's consecutive serial numbers they're actually prototypes that were never supposed to be out in the marketplace but somehow he and i both got a great deal on them um because somebody wanted to sell them and uh <laughs> so eventually he wanted to get into something else and he sold me the, the pair that was kind of our deal like if either either of us, either of us want to sell you have to offer it to the other guy first yeah and so right. we, i, I awesome. took him up on that and uh, I've loved having a pair. And I think he just got, he, he came back around on him and bought a pair, I think, in the past six months or something like that. They're, like you said, though, you can't go wrong. You like, can't. They, just, they, they do a cool thing. Yeah. And there's another company that totally takes care of you. That, that guy sent me some new caps. Some of the cap, my units are like 10 years old and the caps were getting a little funky, humming a little bit. Yeah. Um, the power, I think, power caps. Um, and so he just, you know, I reached out to him and he took care of me. He sent me probably like $80 in caps. <laughs> I was like, whoa, that's amazing. you're the man. Thank you. You know, so nice to be able but to that's reach out to, to the manufacturer. Now, you now you're, you're going to sit here and tell everyone else about it. And right. then also you've, he's created a customer for life. And if there's something else that, that he makes that you want, you know that you can feel great about buying it and that it will always be supported by this knowledgeable, kind person. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, I think he went to U of I or something like that. So we had a slight Illinois connection and. Um, maybe, I don't know. I hope he takes care of all people, all of his customers. <laughs> maybe it was just like a one-off. I don't know. Well, but, I'll tell if I ever buy anything from him, I'll, I'll drop the fact that I went there too. So maybe there you go. Yeah. Play that well. card. There you go. Play that card. For sure. Well, shamp- shampoo banana card. There you go. Um, but, uh, yeah, what anything, are we talking any about? Any other sort of, we're just talking about sort of like specific mi- mixing moves. Mixed like moves. if there's anything, yeah, that, Parallel you're, that compression. You're like, you find yourself doing all, oh, a little New York compression. All right. Yeah. Well, um, I do that on the drums sometimes, but I, I really like to do it for vocals. Um, like bring the vocals out on one fader and sometimes I'll molt it straight out of Pro Tools to a compressor and bring it to a second fader on the console. Or um, sometimes I'll bust it from my main fader on the console back. You know, it, it sort of depends. But having that parallel control so you can smack, you know, the vocal with a compressor and, and kind of dig into it more than you would feel comfortable if you just had it alone, you know, a single channel of it. Um, and then you can, you know, blend that compressed signal back against your uncompressed. I do that pretty regularly, regularly. And um, I think using that uncompressed one to feed reverb and effects and stuff like that so that it has... Okay. So that it's a little less, like, static in terms of its level to the reverb or delay or whatever you're sending it to it has a little more of that natural dynamic built into it mm-hmm. from the performance so i'll do that um and then the the paralleled molted out version is sort of just like that's there for like they're underneath kind of supporting yeah and they're supporting it you know and it brings when you compress something heavily it brings there's a lot of artifacts could be good or bad depending on how you're doing it yeah. um mm-hmm. that pop out could be hash and, and mouth noise and maybe even distortion depending on the compressor you use. Um, and that, it really depends on your track. What is the right fit there? But it's it's got all this stuff going on and it can really bring energy to a track. 
um, or help it cut through or just feel more exciting. Uh, and so I lean on it that way. Hell yeah. Um, uh, you heard it here, for, here first, folks. Do some parallel compression. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's and not, it's, and that's it's so not an original idea for too. me. I'm just no, copying no. <laughs> copy that, that is, uh, that's, I don't know, who, who are we going to give the credit for? Uh, like Steely Dan? I don't, I don't even know, know who, who was doing that back in the <laughs> 70s first. Yeah, I remember when I first learned about that, I told my boss he was doing it wrong. <laughs> I was like, why? Uh, <laughs> why? You're not supposed to put a compressor back in another fader. And he, uh, he's looked at me like, shut the fuck up, dude. You have no idea. Backhands uh, you. Granted, he was using an Alesis 3630 compressor, which is Ooh. pretty fucking awful. But pretty, uh, pretty noisy. There. Yeah. Um, it's. Uh, hey, we've all had. I, yeah, I've had one. I still have yeah. one upstairs. That's the first compressor I ever bought. <laughs> I bought it used at Guitar Center for like 100 bucks. Oh, nice. oh man. Yeah, you're not getting that money back. But no. yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a piece of history for you there. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you obviously you do. You've got a long history of recording a lot of projects and everything. I'm curious if there's any sort of like. You know, if anyone's interested in checking out your studio or your work, are there any projects that you're like particularly proud of where it's like this is this is an awesome example of what it is that I like to do mm. with my work in my studio? Yeah. Um my friend Andrew Pelletier, he was in a band, um, Minor Characters and now Minor Characters, in, ah, yes. Now he operates as a solo artist. He moved to LA and he's calling him his uh project Fur Trader. Totally. So we, yeah, I checked that out. Yeah, we did some songs together, um, we did this project that got drawn over the course of a year, but it was um, one of the songs called Badlands is um, one of my favorite tracks I've worked on. It started as just an acoustic thing, and um, we just added layers, and and eventually couldn't decide you know, what we were supposed to do to it, and he just kind of left me with it. And rather than add more stuff, I just started manipulating. And mm-hmm. um, I kind of found that that sort of... I love doing that the most. Um, kind of harkening back to when I was at Pink Noise in New York doing the advertising stuff. We would do a lot of sound design and just creating environments with mani- manipulated sounds and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I'd kind of stopped doing that for a while, but I realized it's a tool that I have that I should use more often. And so I kind of started doing that and taking like all this stuff that we recorded, just running it through shit and manipulating it and making it sound otherworldly. And I, I leaned heavily on like the... Um, Lexicon Primetime, this old uh, delay unit I have, and started using that almost like an instrument. You know, you can, like, uh, I think it's called the hold function. You can freeze a little yeah. nugget into the thing and then just drop the multiplier so the pitch drops way down and or bring ooh, it way up. Ooh, and you can just do all this ooh. crazy stuff awesome. um, and just kind of push that thing to its limits and created some new textures. And it just, I, I'm really proud of the way it came out, whether you like it or not. I don't know. But, like... I know oh, it's, Andrew, it's li- I, I Andrew likes it. it, and we had a, just a really fun time working together. Um, and so that was that's yeah. something I'm proud of. Um, that's that's a great one for you to check out too. Also, uh, good you know minor characters a band I've played shared the stage with a number of times. Shelby Pollard also from yeah. that band, good friend of the show and, and friend of ours. So definitely go check out that uh, Andrew Pelletier track. Um, I so I, going back just real quick to that. Uh, I know you've also got an, an EMT 140, which is yeah, like that, that, a pretty fucking rad piece of kit to have around. Yeah. Um, how, how do you, do, do you have sort of like, is that, did that make its way onto that track at all? Oh yeah. There's certain in there. things that you tend to use that on a lot. Like do you, obviously, I mean, I, I have the plugin version, which I used all the time, but like, do you, uh, how, how do you find yourself using the 140? Like where does that show itself on your, um, your recordings and mixes? Um, well, and I've, in obvious places on vocals, um, yeah. on that track, it's so, it was so lush that there's a lot, 
I probably use it on a lot of different things. And I, I tend to print those things now when I'm mixing. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'll print the reverb back in, into tools and, and so I could do it multiple times. Or I, my particular plate is a mono plate. And so if I want to have stereo, I got to print it twice. And I'll kind of yep. make a slight tweak to the settings so that it's not the same way twice. Um, and that kind of helps give it a little width and just a little variation from side to side. But, um, yeah, that I mean, that's kind of a... I don't move my settings on the plate too much. Um, sometimes I'll do some weird stuff like compress really hard going into it to get it to react, like uh, on, yeah. on drums or things like that. Um, but it's... Um, I feel like the plate just does what it does in a really natural way without too much fuckery. Like, you just send stuff to it and it just sits in the track my, my particular plate is a darker one tonally, tonally. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't ha- a lot of people know plates as like really bright and shimmery and mine is more glowy for lack, <laughs> for lack of a better <laughs> word you know it's maybe mine sucks but it's the one I have and I've gotten to you know I've had like Balthazar has been by to work on he's like yeah it's darker you know compared to what he's used to hmm. and um I don't know. It's the one I have. I'm not about to swap it out for another one. They're just so big and you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're yeah. like moving. You it. know what I mean? It's a pain. Yes, yeah, it's the one I have, and you can't really you can tension them and make get them operating as well as they as they can. But it's that piece of metal, and, and the sound in a plate is specific to that piece of metal. Yeah, um, and they're all there's variations like you know different necks on a guitar. Like you could come from exactly. the same tree, but it's slightly different place on the tree, and it's going to behave differently. So, um, you know. The plate, there's not a lot you can do to it to make it that different. To, um, right. I was gonna ask you. I was gonna ask you like something that that ba- like where do you even get something like that? I mean, do you go on Reverb and find something like that, or do that you just was, know somebody who's closing out a studio, or how does that work? Do, do you guys know Henry Brown? I think he lives in Portland. Oh, now. sure do. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, he's one of my one of my really good friends. Yeah. Well, I got it from him, and this is no kidding. Yeah. Whoa. This is um in 2000. I don't know seven. Or somewhere around there, and he's yeah, because like, he had that house on Damon. Yeah, he um, I think he had it in his living room, and <laughs> he couldn't move it. Like it wasn't like nobody was buying it. Or, I I don't know the history really, other than right. um, what he told me. But yeah, I got a screaming deal on it, and for what they sell for now, I'm like, I'm glad I bought it. Um, it's a great yeah, tool. It's awesome. I've had to put a little work into it, recap it, and when it you know in one spot, and some new tubes here there, and they're not cheap, but. It gets used all the time, and it just really delivers the goods. So I can't oh, yeah, well, play too much. And I it's think- sort of like a console too. It's kind of one of those like Im- impressive things to say that like if somebody's really impressed in, in trying to make a decision on where to go based on gear, like if you've got an EMT one forty, like right. that's one yeah, of the people get that excited about get that you stuff. The studio, yeah, hell yeah, yep. yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a cool piece. And plus, you know who owned it before me was Donny Osmond. So if you want a little bit of that what? Osmond, the what do they call the Osmond family or? Donnie yeah, Marie, uh, I think it's just the Osmond. You Osmond. want a little bit of that yeah. mojo, you know? <laughs> You've got That's it. Look, <laughs> I, w- I will die on this hill. Crazy Horses by the Osmonds is a fucking banger, and that and like I I will I will live with that until the day I die. That's some fucking rules. <laughs> the most bizarre music video you've ever seen. The weird dance that they're doing, but I'm that sure. song rips. And I don't I don't care. Like I 
you know, whatever the Osmonds are, are what they are, but that song is incredible. And I will, I will die on that hill for sure. Uh, <laughs> That's sweet. So one, la- one last sort of like recording sort of question here, and this is honor, uh, in honor of Dave being a bass boy. Um, how do you, what do you, what's your sort of standard approach to, to recording bass? Are you uh, a, Ooh, a DI yeah. guy? Are you micing up cabs? Like what is, how do you tend to, how do you tend to approach that? Um, I bounce around a lot, but I'm always getting a DI just because, um, Double it's up. like, it's, yeah, it's your, sometimes a DI is what we use in the mix. I know a lot of mm-hmm. guys that, mm-hmm. yep. you know, take, they'll get sent the, the the bass amp track and the DI and they dump the bass amp track. Right. Um, they're like, I don't even want to play with it. It's like just making the, the whole phase relationship and all that stuff just makes it harder. There are some situations where the bass amp, where you're going for some, you know, interesting grind or tone that's, that's really there on the amp track. And so that, that's a unique situation. But um, my scenario here. I like the Rupert Neve DI. Um, it's just like a workhorse. I think it's called the RNDI. The RNDI. Yeah, yeah. and it it's great. Like it's hard. You can't make the thing sound bad. Um, it goes all the way down. Doesn't give a lot of bumps and like hype. It just is like gets mm-hmm. everything. Um, so I like it for that. Um, I have a B15 flip top that I bought. It was like a damn right. That was a what was it? An eBay total gamble. I bought it for five hundred bucks. No way. It, oh yeah. God. Was it working? Well, I wasn't sure when I got it because right. the dude, like, it, it said it was working in the listing, but the dude sent it to me in a box and didn't pack it well. Luckily, oh. you know, those things are kind of self-containing. You flip them over and, you know, they gen- generally are, you're protecting the amp as it's inside there when you mount it that sure. way. Sure. Yeah. It's like a box in its own. Yeah. yeah but um, anyways, it came very loose in a tattered box when I got it and like the fuse holder was cracked off. And I was like, oh shit, this is going to be a nightmare. Replaced the fuse holder, turned it on and it worked. And I got wow. about, um, I want to say I got six or seven years out of it before I had a problem. And I think the mm-hmm. power transformer blew. But that's um, that thing's been great. Um, yeah, those are you know, we replaced the power transformer and everything's, you know, ship shape. So, um, yeah, that's a that's a workhorse. People get excited about that one. Um, what do you like to use for a t- microphone? You, on yeah, that I was going to ask the same question. I, I, I move around on that. Um, RE20 has been an easy go-to, but somewhere along the line... I have a, uh, an AKG C12, and somebody's like, oh, dude, I put that on the bass. That's what Paul McCartney did. And so <laughs> I, um, we did Is that an original C12 or one of the reissues? It's an original one. Oh, um, my God. I, I picked it up so a couple incredible. years ago. Um, Holy shit. That was a, yeah, that was a big reach. But I I'd always yeah. kind of, I'd watched three of those go, like, locally get sold. I just, you know, it wasn't. Does he have the balls enough to go for it? And then uh, right. finally on like so, the I mean, third that's, or fourth that's a, one, that's like, like a oh. fine automobile. Yeah. Like, that's not not, yeah. not a cheap acquisition. But I'll mm-hmm. tell you what, like people have come here for this mic. Like yep. they get excited about it and singers like it and engineers like it. And it's nice, you know, it's won me a couple projects. So, um, yeah. you know, it's it's earned its keep, you know, and it appreciates. So gear like that, while it is expensive to get into, get into it, it's um, kind of feeds itself, you know? Sure. Yeah. So, Man, um, but yeah, so it sounds great on the bass. I use an upright bass a lot too. It sounds fantastic there. Oh, wow. Um, but, um, yeah, I, something, you know, that I really enjoy on electric bass is, uh, I have these Collins, um, 212 preamps that I kind of modified a bit. And hmm. there's this quarter inch plug on the front that was originally meant to be an output. And I kind of tweaked it and just wired it straight into the input transformer and it, it's totally wrong and a mismatch impedance wise and all that shit but it sounds awesome like I, <laughs> I i do guitars into that all the time and um 
just blitz them, and it sounds amazing. And then I was like, I gotta try this on bass, and I was, I'm not a great bass player, but I laid down some bass for that, and I'm like, this sounds really vibey, and it's thick, but not like blooming, bo- huge bottom where it gets in the way, and it just, yeah, uh, it's just a right. cool tool. So good old 50s cool. tube gear, you know, with a well, uh, kind of DI situation, doesn't hurt. Dude, do a little callback. Uh, if it sounds cool, it is cool. There yeah. you go. There you go. There it is. Yeah. Wow. I am blown away by just the the amount of cool stuff that that we've unearthed and that that we've learned from you today man thank you so much for for being <laughs> yeah, here dude, and man, it was an honor. chatting with us and thanks for having me and, on uh, it's fun to talk with oh, you guys oh man oh of course so uh anybody who's listening uh if they want to check out you and your work and your studio uh, want to get in contact with you where would you send them on the old interwebs uh website www.shirkmusic.com that's s-h-i-r-k-m-u-s-i-c.com or um instagram shirk studios uh, one word, lowercase, and um, yeah, I'm on Facebook, but I don't do that much with my studio on there, just because I'm kind of sick of it. And mm, oh, I feel yeah. less yep. Facebook in my life, the better, I think. <laughs> but, For most of us, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, you can hit me there. There's a contact page on the website, and you can uh, email me through there. Or you have questions about how to do things, or if you want to do something here, and that's something I want to point out. Like, if you guys, you know, ever want to work here, I, I rent it out to other producers and engineers and stuff like that too. And I, I'm the assistant in those situations. And so if that's a good fit for your project, hit me up. I'd love to be involved. Boom. That's fucking good. You should. Yeah. And, and, and as uh, it has the GearBud stamp of approval, approval because like 15 years before we even started this show, we were working with you and, yeah. and doing cool stuff. <laughs> right on, man. Only gotten cooler. <laughs> we're going to have to unearth so. that, that tr- Tom Schrader and the Sapiens sessions. Oh, dude. Oh, you the, I, I can only speak to the Schrader one. I can't speak to the Sapiens, but I know for sure that the Schrader one sounded fucking awesome, and, and it's one. Yeah. It's it's the best live recording I have personally ever done. So, <laughs> well, yeah. thank you. Uh, Same here, man. Love it. All about performance, buddy. I'm just hitting record. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd, I'd say I'd say that's maybe that's at least maybe 75 percent true in this case. <laughs> All right, well, dude, that was so awesome. Yeah, thank thanks you so, so much. much yeah, thanks uh, for having me on. You know, Stay safe and and stay healthy and uh, you know keep on uh, keep on keeping on. All right, All hope right. to see you guys soon.